0: You are listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. At the very beginning of his ministry, after being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, Jesus walks into the synagogue. He goes to the front and he takes one of the scrolls of Isaiah. And then he makes a declaration, not about some distant prophecy, not about some ideology but about himself and what he had planned to do. And this is what he said. He said, The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And even though that message wasn't received very well by the people gathered there today, that's exactly what Jesus went out to do. Jesus went out all over the countryside, reaching out to the people who were ostracized and on the edges of society, sharing with them the good news about the kingdom of God, talking to them about spiritual freedom, in some cases setting them spiritually free from possession and oppression, going around and ministering and loving the least of these. But Jesus also went around during his ministry and healed, literally giving the sight to the blind, telling people who were paralyzed from birth to stand up and to walk, and showing his dominion not over just the spiritual things of this world, but also the physical ailments that cause us so much pain and brokenness. And I know I've talked about this before, but I love the way that N.T. Wright describes this part of Jesus' ministry. He says what Jesus is doing here is he's going through the countryside and healing people of physical ailments. He is showing what it looks like when God is king on earth. He is showing a small window of the power that God has over all the forces in this world, good and bad. And he's showing us what it will one day look like when he comes again to make all things right and all things new. The stories of Jesus healing those in need are foreshadows. They were life-changing for the recipients, but they were very much temporary things. The man who was blind, who was given back his sight, eventually died. The same with the man who was paralyzed and who was raised to walk. Even Lazarus, who was dead and in the tomb and came out alive, eventually went back to the grave. And so Jesus gives us this temporary picture of what he will one day do once and for all. And so these things that were temporarily life-changing for the recipients are something that is faith-affirming for those of us who are believers in Jesus. It's a promise and a seal that Jesus was showing through his earthly ministry that he would come once again to complete once and for all. Last week, we started looking at Revelation chapter 21, and we see this depiction of God recreating the world, giving us a new heaven and a new earth, depicted as a heavenly city, a city descending from God into the world. And Starting last week and moving into the next couple weeks, we're going to be talking about some characteristics of this spiritual city. Last week, seeing it as a city of restoration, where God is once and for all mending the relationship between him and his people between the God of the universe and and us who are sinful and broken, completely removing those barriers so that we can stand fully in the presence of God in a righted relationship where he is our God and we are his people once and forevermore. And today we're going to see that also as a city of healing, where Jesus steps in and takes all of the things that cause us pain, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, and otherwise, and separates those things away from us so that we can stand before God healed and whole for all of eternity. And so we're going to be again in Revelation chapter 21, this time focusing on verses four through eight, but I want to go ahead and read what we read last week as well. And so we're going to begin in verse one. And John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we again just thank you so much for the end of your story. For the reminder of the promise that we have in Christ. A promise that he didn't make lightly. And a promise that we have the assurance that he will one day fulfill. And the healing that Jesus offered during his ministry will be offered freely without payment to those who believe. And God, not just a temporal healing, but an eternal healing where we are healed and whole in your presence forever. And so God, I just pray that you give us the faith to be able to believe your promise, that you give us such a trust in that promise that it would radically alter everything about who we are and how we live and even how we die. And also God, that we would take each and every moment as an opportunity to reflect our promised healing in our lives, in the way that we love and care for those who are sick and hurting and in need. So father, help us to both be believers in and practicers of your healing and restoration. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. It's inevitable when you approach a book like Revelation That there are going to be times when, especially if you've grown up in or around church, that things that you've held as maybe a tightly held conviction or just a basic understanding of what you think the Bible as a whole or the book of Revelation specifically may have said, it's going to get in the way of those things. Because the reality is studying intently a book like this is not something that we do often. And so we rely on things that we've heard or things that we've grown up in, and those things become a bit dogmatic in our minds and just become part of our belief system. And then when we really get into the book of Revelation, all of a sudden it starts opening the whole thing up and really challenging some of the convictions that we've held for maybe our entire lives. And there are some places that that's fairly obvious some places where the book of Revelation just immediately shocks our system and throws it all upside down and we have to wrestle with some of these big theological or eschatological issues. But some of these things are much smaller and yet still incredibly profound. One of the things that you hear, especially maybe growing up in the South, if you grew up under good old fashioned Southern gospel music, is the idea that there's no crying in heaven that there's no mourning, that there's no sorrow in heaven. But early on in the book of Revelation, we've seen that's not exactly true. As we have this picture of the martyrs around the throne of God mourning and crying out to God day after day for justice and for retribution. And so we've seen that, that on the other side of this life, not all the pain and not all the sorrow and not all the difficulty immediately passes away. But... When we arrive here in Revelation chapter 21, all of that begins to change. In verse four, after John receives this incredible revelation of God being with his people and all the barriers of sin and shame being tossed away once and for all so that we can be fully in the presence of God, now here he says that God acting as our God with us being his people, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I love especially, and we've talked about the fact that the the timeline of Revelation can be a little bit tricky to try to navigate and figure out what's going on where. But I love the way that the vision unfolds for John here in these last several chapters, because we see God emphatically defeat his enemies in chapter 18, 19, and 20 we see God enact his authority over all of creation and bring his enemies to absolutely nothing. And it's a bit violent and it's a bit overwhelming, but it's sudden and then it's over. But that's not where God finishes his work because as he's creating this new heaven and the new earth, the very first thing he does on that side of his judgment is to take all the things that his enemies have caused all the things that Satan brought into the world, all the things that our sin has brought into the world, all the violence, all the chaos, those things all have left us with scars. And it's reflected here in this image of tears. And it says that the God of the universe, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The same God who created the heavens and the earth, the same God who is, as we sing so often, greater than we can imagine, so much larger than we could possibly fathom and possibly understand his scale is so beyond anything that we know. And yet that God, just like in Genesis chapter one and chapter two, where we see God both transcendent over creation, but also intimate with his creation, speaking to his creation, putting his hands in the dirt in the creation narratives of Genesis one and two. Now we see that same God of the universe putting his hands on his tiny, fragile, broken people, with all of the stains of our own sin, with all of the scars of the physical pain that were caused to us on this world, all of the mental and emotional baggage that we carry with us, all the things that cause us pain and break our hearts are just written all over our faces. And now here in this passage, the God of the universe reaches down and touches our face and wipes away the remnant of all the things that the old creation brought into our lives. The book of Revelation is a book of great conflict from almost the very beginning. If you can remember all the way back when we were talking about the letters to the church at the beginning of this book, there was conflict in the midst of those churches. Some oppression from outside of the church's walls, sometimes conflict and division from within. But then we see both physical and spiritual warfare all the way throughout the rest of the book. And we're reminded that this life is often a life of pain in a variety of different ways. But the reality is, this, this allegorical, this spiritual telling of our struggles and our difficulties is one that we often know just well looking at our lives in general. We can see the very specific things that cause us pain. And it's different for all of us. And all of us may be here this morning experience some kind of pain, and it could be of varying degrees and all different types. But there are so many things in this world that bring us tears and that cause that pain. Things that make us sick and make us feel weak. Things that make us feel shame and make us feel guilt. Things that cause us to not be able to do the things that we want to do and not be able to go the places that we want to do. Things that tear apart our relationships. Things that leave us feeling worthless and broken. Things that even kill us and take our very life away. But now here in Revelation 21, we see the promise that one day those things will be gone. John says, not only does he wipe away the stains and the tears from our faces, but he says that all those things, there won't be death anymore. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for these are all former things, and all of those former things are going to pass away. And we're reminded here that the last thing in all of eternity to die will be our sadness and our mourning. The last thing in all of eternity to die will be our shame and our guilt that was brought by our sin that Jesus is now separated from us, as we've said over and over again, as far as the East is from the West, punishing sin and allowing us to remain whole. The last thing to be eliminated from eternity will be our sickness and even death. And we'll be able to stand before God This time on the other side of that judgment of Revelation chapter 20, standing fully in the presence of God with our relationship restored and righted before him, we'll be able to stand in the presence of God, healed and whole from all of the things that broke our hearts, renewed and redeemed. And I just love that symmetry and that beauty. Again, from Genesis chapter one and two where we see the intimacy of God in creation, and now we see that same intimacy in new creation as he restores not only the world, but the totality of who we are. Everything about ourselves, not just a physical resurrection, not just a spiritual resurrection, but this is an emotional and a mental resurrection as he is shaping us once and for all into who we were designed to be. And after he does that, The one from the throne speaks. And I love that language that John uses all throughout this book, that he just refers to him as the one seated on the throne, to remind us that none of this is about anything that we've done or that we've accomplished. That this isn't our victory that we've earned through some sort of pious lives or some sort of good works that we were able to do, but John is constantly redirecting our focus back to the throne and not just the throne as an image, but to the one who is seated on the throne. The one whom all of heaven is singing, glorifying day and night. John is reminding us that he is the one that's won this victory for us. He is the one that's ushered in this restoration and this reconciliation. And he is the one that's bringing healing. And again, just like in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the one who is seated on the throne beginning to speak. And this first quote here, It's just so powerful because he says, behold, I am making all things new, reminding us that this isn't just some sort of return to Eden. This isn't just trying to erase all the things that have happened, but God says, no, I am literally making everything new. I'm bringing everything to exactly what it should be. That from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, we have been on a process of God creating and redeeming and restoring and now renewing everything in his world, including us. And I love how he follows it up here. He says, behold, I am making all things new, And also, just in case we forget, John says, also, he says this. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. This is a hard thing to imagine. And with it being a hard thing to imagine, it can be something that is hard to believe. Because what we know about our world, what we know about our lives, is that it does hurt. And that there are things that cause us shame and guilt. There are things that cause us brokenness and depression and anxiety and worry. There are things that cause us to doubt. There are things that cause us great pain, not just physically, but spiritually. And this is such a part of our ever present reality that it's hard to imagine or perceive any sort of existence where this isn't part of who we are. And so, God, again, recognizing our weaknesses, Recognizing the places where we can doubt, the places where we cannot really believe like we should believe, he is putting his stamp and his seal on this. And he looks at John, he says, Write this down. I want you to make sure there's a record of this. I want you to make sure there's a receipt here so that one day, as you are longing for this day, one day you're going to be able to look in reverse and say, Oh, wait, he promised us. This is something that God is saying is written in stone that it is a promise of the one who is seated on the throne. And he follows it up by saying, this is trustworthy and true. This is worth putting all of your faith and all of your hope in. And what's so amazing about God is that every time he makes a promise and he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to tell us anything. On our community group on Thursday nights, we're going through this study of what's called praying at the crossroads is the the name of our study. And each time we're looking at some some prayers of saints in the Old Testament when they were at a very difficult place in their lives. And we looked this past week at Habakkuk. And in the story of Habakkuk, Habakkuk goes to God and he cries out in anger because the Babylonians were coming in and he knew that this was going to be bad for the people of God, for the people of Israel. And he was angry and he was upset and he cries out to God. He makes accusations against God. And then God in his grace tells him what he's doing. He says, listen, I've got a purpose and a plan. I'm the one raising up these Chaldeans, these Babylonians for a purpose. But he doesn't always tell us that. That story always makes me think of the story of Job, where Job comes to God and he cries out in the same anger. The same anguish saying, God, if I did something wrong, just show me and I'll fix it. I don't understand why all of this is happening to me. And God, instead of revealing the big plan that he has for Job's life, just starts talking to him about who he is. And so it's clear that if God doesn't want to explain himself, he doesn't have to. And if God doesn't want to make a promise to us, it's not necessary. He is who he is, whether he speaks these promises into existence or not. And what's so amazing about that is that every time God makes a promise, He's putting his divinity on the line. Every time God makes a promise, he is inviting us to say, test and prove these things. Watch and see if this happens. You can go back and you can look at my promises. And if God even fails on one of those promises, even in the smallest way, scripture tells us that that he would cease to be God. We see that in the covenants of the Old Testament. We see it in the promises of the new and the reminders that God is faithful and that all of his promises are yes and amen. And so even if one isn't, then he isn't, but he's not scared. He's not scared to make this kind of a promise. And so he looks at John, he says, I know this is going to be hard to believe, but I want you to write this down. This is trustworthy and true. This is absolutely what's going to happen. This is the end of the road. This is the end of my plan for my creation when I'm going to make all things right and all things new. And one day you're going to see because he says, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of water without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Again, that language isn't uncertain, it's not shaky. There's no doubt. There's no questioning in there. God says to the one that conquers, they will have their promise. They will have their inheritance. They will be my children. I will be their God and they will be my people. There is no doubt or hesitation in the words of God. He is declaring it as a promise and one that we should hold on to with everything that we have. We can write this down and maybe we should write this down. Maybe this should be something that we write down in the margins of our Bible, in the the pages of our journals, maybe on the walls of our homes or somewhere where we're going to see it regularly because everything in our life is trying to convince us that these words aren't true. Everything that we experience is going to cause us to question and doubt if there could possibly be a God who is going to restore and redeem all of his creation. If there could possibly be a way that we would live for eternity without pain or without division or brokenness or guilt or shame. And so we need to write these words down and learn how to believe the truth that God is making all things new. And we need to build our lives around this promise. If this is true, then this is the kind of truth that has to radically affect our lives. We can't read this and claim to believe this and walk away unchanged by this. But this kind of truth, this kind of promise enables us to live in a radically different way than anybody else around us. This kind of promise allows us to look like Paul did. It all of our sufferings, all of our sicknesses, our weaknesses, the things that, that imprison us and hurt us and cause us pain, all of those things are all of a sudden put in the scale of eternity and they're made to seem very small. If we believe this promise and we believe this hope that we have an eternity without pain or sorrow or sickness or death, then that should absolutely change the way that we look at pain. That should absolutely change the way that we look at sorrow, that we look at sickness, that we look at even death. Recognizing these things as temporary. And it's amazing because we can kind of do anything for a short period of time, but a lifetime seems very long. If we're looking at these 70, 80-ish years on average that we have is all we have. But if we look at the world through the lens of eternity, then we recognize that even if we suffer our whole lives, it's small compared to knowing Christ Jesus for all of eternity. Even if we feel sick and weak and broken for days, months, years, or decades, it's just a fraction of time compared to knowing Christ Jesus. If we find ourselves riddled with hurt, And brokenness and guilt and doubt and things that we have to endure that sometimes feel so great and overwhelming we can't get out of bed in the morning. We know that we have a promise that Christ is greater and that one day he's gonna renew and restore all of these things. And so, as followers of Christ, we should be able to suffer well, we should be able to get sick well. We should be able to strive to follow after Christ, knowing that even when we fall up and end up short, even when we mess up, that God is still working in and through us and guiding us towards the promise that we have in Christ. And so we can overcome the guilt and shame that comes from those things and keep moving forward in the promises of God. This promise demands that we build our lives around it. And we should absolutely look different in the way that we endure and experience everything that comes in our lives because of it. And so if you're here and you're hurting, write this down. If you're here and you're sick, write this down. If you're here and you're dealing with mental or emotional pain that feels overwhelming, write this down. If you're here and you're struggling with with sin and temptation, write these things down. If you're here and you are literally dying, write these words down. Because you have a promise that goes beyond your sickness. You have a promise that goes beyond your hurt. You have a promise that goes beyond your weakness. You have a promise that goes beyond your very last breath. And because of that, we can cling to that hope and cling to that promise and use every single breath that God has given us stewardship over, whether it's strong or weak, and use it for his glory, for the good of our neighbors, and for the advancement of the kingdom. We need to hold on to this promise because he is making all things new. And the way that that's worded is beautiful. Because he doesn't say, behold, I am going to make all things new. He says, behold, I am making all things new. And Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of new creation. Talking about believers as as a testimony to that truth, that our salvation is a promise of that resurrection. And so we're experiencing this process of God making all things new right now. And if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, when God says, I am making all things new, he's talking about you too. And he's talking about me as well. This is, yes, our future hope, but it's also part of our present reality. The Bible calls it sanctification that we are being sanctified, that each and every day as we follow after Jesus, we are being conformed to his image. That each morning when we wake up in those mercies that are new each and every day, he is taking something old within us and making it new. He is taking something that was just a little further away from Christ and bringing us just a little bit closer. That each day is a process of restoration, a process of renewal, and a process of healing. And that puts us in a unique place. Because that kind of mentality, again, when we've talked about the kingdom of God, we've looked at it from the language of already and not yet. That we're experiencing the kingdom of God here and now, that Jesus established that through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and that we live as a kingdom of priests, a part of the kingdom of God here and now, but waiting for the fullness of God's kingdom to come into this world. And in the same way, we're living in the already, not yet of God making all things new which means on some days we may feel really new and on some days we may feel really old And on some days, those things that that are part of our old life may creep up again and cause us to fall short on some days, the things that are part of this old creation that, that hurt us and cause us pain and agony, those things are going to get the best of us. And so we have to learn to live in the balance, the balance of grace and patience recognizing that we are in a broken world, surrounded by broken people, and that there is still part of us that's broken as well. And so that means we need to extend grace in creation. We need to extend grace in our relationships. And we also need to extend grace to ourselves, recognizing that there are going to be times when we mess up. There are going to be times when we sin and fall short of God's glory again, even though Christ has given everything to save us. And that is not a time to be overwhelmed and consumed with guilt, but to take it to the foot of the cross, to confess it to Jesus, to be reminded of his forgiveness, to be reminded that he has called us out of that sin and into life. And then to do as Paul calls us to do and to keep moving forward, not looking at what was behind, to live in this measure of patience, realizing that things may be very difficult for a day or a season or a year or a number of years, but to have the patience to be able to endure those things well, knowing that they'll eventually come to an end. And then until then, for whatever reason, that's the lot that God has given us and is still expecting us and entrusting us to be good stewards, to be good managers, not just of the good things in our lives, not just of our materials, not just of the money that we have, not just of our time, but he's entrusted us to be good stewards of our pain and good stewards of our suffering. But that requires an abundance of patience. But thankfully, that's one of those fruit of the spirit that Jesus gives us so that we can do that even if it's imperfect. And so we balance that grace and patience with also a desire for great zeal and growth for the gospel, not being satisfied in the times when we fall and the times when we mess up and the times when we sin, but desiring each and every day to be conformed more to the image of Christ and to live a life that honors and glorifies God to make war against our sin and our shame and our guilt. Every single moment growing in who Christ has saved us to be and having a zeal and a fervor, even in the midst of our weakness and our brokenness to go beyond what we think we is possible to go beyond what we think that we can do and to trust in the grace and mercy of Christ and the strength that he has given us to accomplish far beyond our means and our circumstances and our weaknesses for the glory of God and for the good of those around us. Because we do have work to do. And it is our responsibility as the first fruits of new creation to live like we've been made new, to live like we've been saved, but also to continue the work that Jesus began, not just spiritually, not just preaching the kingdom of God, but think about those apostles as they went from town to town, preaching the good news of the kingdom, but also participating in the healing that Jesus was doing. And so it's our responsibility to be peacemakers and to do all that we can to be a picture of Christ's healing in whatever way that he allows us to do that, to reach out and to love our neighbors as ourselves, to care for the hurting and the broken. That's one of the themes of the season of Lent, but far beyond that, that's one of the themes of the Christian life, that we love our neighbors as ourselves, that we care for those that are hurting and are in need. When Jesus was summing up the work in the ministry of the, the apostles, of the disciples, he said, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And that's the calling of the Christian life, to participate in the ministry of Christ, the healing and reconciling ministry of Jesus, whether we feel like it or not. And so we balance that grace and that patience with zeal and fervor And growth, and we do the absolute best we can to trust in the truth of this promise, to pursue that hope that we have of not just restoration, but complete and total healing. And then, in the meantime, until we receive it in full, we push through and persevere for the sake of Christ and the good of his kingdom. We need to be the kind of people who are constantly living and learning and loving and even losing with the truth of Revelation 21 in our hearts, reminding us of our coming redemption and God's city of restoration and healing and allowing that truth to shape every single moment of our lives until our faith is made sight, until what's a promise that's written down becomes our ever-present reality once and for all, for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father God, this is a very difficult truth to believe because everything in our lives tells us otherwise. God, it's impossible to fully imagine or comprehend an eternity without pain or sorrow or sin or sickness or death. But you've put your name on it. You've rested your and divinity on it. So God, help us to believe those words are trustworthy and true. And as we look forward to our promised eternity, when you'll wipe away our tears and the very stain of sin and sickness and death from our faces, God, help us to be people who struggle well who suffer well who get sick well who face our weaknesses well God even people who die well recognizing that all of this is temporary and our healing is eternal God give us the faith of Paul to be able to face all sorts of adversity and tribulation from within and from the outside, to make war with our sin, to strive for holiness in everything that we do, and to use our lives in sickness and in health, in the good times and bad and success and failure and trial and triumph, and everything in between. To use every moment we have to proclaim your healing into a sinful, broken, sick, and dying world. God, we do pray that you would make us strong in our weakness for the cause of the gospel and the good of those around us. And that even though we can accomplish nothing on our own, that God, through us, you would do a work in this community, in this world that is far beyond our imagination. And so God, we put all these things in your hand because we know that it is only you who saves us, sanctifies us, strengthens us, and leads us onward to eternity. And so God, we trust in you fully even when we don't. God, we pray that all of these things would be true in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit and through your Son, Jesus, our Savior. And we ask all these things in his precious name. Amen.